You've been reading along in the story, and if you haven't been, you've been reading along in the Bible, or maybe you're just joining us. The story is not a replacement to the Bible, it's a companion to. It's a chronologically arranged unfolding of the Scripture from the beginning to the ending, 31 chapters. Uh, we have them in the resource kiosk out in the foyer. I'd love for you to pick it up. Read chapter 7 next week. Uh, we were with chapter 6 this week, entitled, Wondering. And by way of review, for 40 years, Moses has served as a shepherd on the backside of the desert for his father-in-law Jethro. And then one day, while he's out tending his sheep, he sees this bush that is burning on fire, but it is not being consumed. So he walks over to investigate the bush, and the voice of God calls out to Moses from the bush. And he asks Moses to go confront the most powerful man in the world the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. And Moses obeys reluctantly, but he obeys. We studied through the ten plagues and the miraculous exodus and crossing of the Red Sea, and now the people are no longer slaves. They are free, and they can head into the promised land that God has told them would be theirs. And on the surface, it seems like a really easy journey to make. It doesn't look that difficult. And so for us to understand how easy the journey should have been, we can look at the obvious route, the one that you would have assumed they would have most likely taken, and it looks something like this. I'm going to walk over here to this TV really quick, and they're going to zoom the cameras in for those of you up here that can't see me. But this is the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, it's in the flap of your, uh, your cover of your story. This dotted line is a caravan route along the Great Sea, and this is where they were in the land of Goshen area of Egypt. And this route, according to Isaiah 9-1, was referred to as the way of the sea. And this is the route that Israel should have, most likely. I mean, the shortest distance between two points is a a straight line. They were here, and they were headed over to here. And it seemed like the way of the sea would have been the most logical route for them to take. It was a well-traveled route. It was a safe route. It was even a scenic route, and it was the most direct path between Egypt and the promised land. That route between Egypt and Canaan was about 175 miles. And uh, good roads, nice views. And so I imagine when they left, Moses said, let's do this. Let's get this done. And so I tried to put this journey into perspective in our world. So if you were to go from here today, the parking lot of this church, to Texarkana, Texas, go by way of the George Bush Tollway to I-30 and up, It is about 173 miles from here to Texarkana, Texas. And the GPS says if you drive it, it should take you about three hours. Now, if you've got an iPhone, you can push the the bus icon. You can push the, the driving icon or you can push a hiking icon. So to put it into a parallel with the uh, nation of Israel, you punch the hiking icon and the iPhone will tell you it'll take you two days and 12 hours to walk from here to Texarkana, Texas. Now that's really aggressive because it assumes you don't stop to sleep, you don't stop to take a break, you walk at the same pace for two days and 12 hours. But let's take the journey in a more realistic way. Let's say you walk 12 miles a day, you keep a reasonable pace You could get to Texarkana from here in about a week and a half pretty easily. But in the case of the Israelites, there's two to three million of them. They have all the gold and silver the Egyptians gave them, plus all their animals and all their materials. So let's give them a month, okay? At worst case, a month max that they should be able to take the journey from the land of Goshen of Egypt into the promised land. But that's not really how it went. 
God took them on a much different path instead of the direct path, the most obvious route. So here's how I want us to define the direct path this morning. The direct route is the shortest distance, the most scenic route, the most popularly traveled route. But in case you didn't know this, God is not a fan of the direct route. If you haven't experienced it in your own life, let me tip you off. God doesn't usually choose the shortest distance, the most scenic route, or the most popularly traveled road to accomplish much of anything. And that's the case here. The Israelites don't take the direct route. Instead, they take a much different path. They go from Egypt and first down to Mount Sinai, which is on the southern tip of the peninsula. So if you look at the red dotted lines on the map, instead of going the way of the sea, which is the way you thought they would have gone, they crossed the Red Sea here and they went down along the Red Sea until they got to Mount Sinai. This is where they camped out for an entire year. And at Mount Sinai, this out-of-the-way pit stop is where God gave them their, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the laws of bringing sacrifices and offerings. This is where He gave them the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. They spent a year in this out-of-the-way pit stop. They're going in the opposite direction of the promised land. And they are no closer than when they originally left. They've been camping out a year. They should have been there in 11 days. And they're in this pit stop. And here's why. You have to remember the nation of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And when you're stepped on and oppressed for 400 years, it has a way of shaping your worldview. It has a way of shaping your thinking, which eventually become your actions. And I believe God had them here for a year detoxing from the slavery of Egypt. He's reconnecting with His people. He's setting boundaries for them. He's hanging out with them. He's doing life with them. He's establishing a new world view for them before they enter into the promised land. So a year, and after many lessons at Sinai, they are ready to head towards the promised land. God gives them a supernatural GPS He gives them a pillar of uh, a cloud that will follow them uh, throughout the day. And they follow the cloud. That's how they know where to go. And then at night, there's a pillar of fire. And that's how they know where to go as they travel at night. They follow him as he guides them. And even though this is a quick pick stop, uh, it should still only take them about a week and a half. A month at the most. They're no closer than they were. So they still need to get there. But it shouldn't take them any more than a month. With as many people as that are traveling from Sinai. Here's what Deuteronomy 1-2 says. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, which is in the promised land, by the Mount Seir Road. So it's supposed to take 11 days according to Deuteronomy. And so Moses um, doesn't really think this is going to be that big a deal. 11 days. We've been here a year. Let's go. From the Sinai area, God says, you turn left. You go straight on the Mount Sierra Road for 11 days, boom, the promised land. That's how long it was supposed to take, but it took them 39 years. If you're like me when you travel, traveling is a competition against the clock. When I was a student in college, I drove the same path back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That was before the days of having a GPS. I mean, my cell phone was a bag phone with an antenna and a magnet that said, boom, on the top. And we thought we were cutting edge. 
And I, 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 I traveled this road all the time and I would get out of the gas station and I would run in like the place was on fire and I would run back out and I'd get into my car only because I wanted to beat the time I had the last time I went home. A competition against the clock. And now it's worse because we have GPSs on our phones or in our cars and the GPS tells us it's supposed to take this amount of time to get from point A to point B. And the minute that time comes up on there, I'm thinking, I can beat that. Can you imagine Moses? He pulls out the GPS, 11 days, turn left at uh, Sinai, go straight on the road of Mount Sierra Road. You wind up in Kadesh Barnea. Boom, you're there. He pulls out the GPS. It tells him 11 days. He said, no big deal. We got this. And 39 years later, they finally enter the promised land. This 39-year period of history for the nation of Israel is known as the wandering. God does not take them on the most direct path. Instead, He just kind of leads them around. They wonder. This is how you can define wondering. Wondering is living in the space between where I started and where I want to be. Wondering is living in the space between where I started and where I want to be. And God does a lot of His work when we travel in that space. My guess is that many of you, that statement describes your life right now. You're living in the space between where you currently are and where you want to be. Living in the space between graduation and getting a real job. Living in the space between dating and getting married. Living in the space between deciding to start a family and having a child. Living in the space between diagnosis and remission. Living in the space between going into debt and getting out of debt. Living in the space between being let go and finding new employment. Living in the space between saying goodbye to a loved one and seeing them again in heaven. It is in the space between that we often find ourselves in this life. And the question is, how do you do life? In the space between. How do you respond to God when you find yourself in a season of wondering? Most of us don't do well with this because we're all about the destination. We could care less about the journey. Our primary focus of any journey is to get it over with as quickly as possible so we can get wherever it is that we want to go. We don't like the journey. It's almost innate. It's like it's bred into us not to like the journey. I mean, ask any parent. What's the first question the kids ask on the way to grandma's house? Are we there yet? And they ask it before you get out of the subdivision. Are we there yet? We are just like they are. It's a part of our nature. We just want to get it over with. Our tendency is to focus on where we're going and is limit, eliminate as much time as possible to between where we are and where we want to be. We're constantly in a hurry and it marks our lives as a culture. How fast can we get the journey over so we can get to the destination? So to see how much we are like the rest of our culture, busy and in a hurry, I want to give you a little quiz, and I, I want you to join me in answering these questions with an upraised hand. And don't lie, we're in church, so let's all be honest today and, and take this quiz. 
to see whether or not we're in a hurry. Eight questions or eight statements, whether or not you identify with them or not. I have cut through a gas station to avoid stopping at a red light. Yeah. The officers are not watching. They're, they're, they're out. Security. I frequently look at my watch or a clock nearby. Now, some of you are lying because while I'm preaching, I see you looking at your clock over and over and over again. I see you. Number three, people who talk slowly irritate me. It's like every word is a sentence. Come on, just say it. Spit it out. Number four, I become annoyed when the person in front of me at the checkout line chooses to write a check. Come on, Wilma, this isn't the Flintstones. You didn't run yourself to the grocery store. Slide that debit card and let's go. Number five, I often find myself finishing other people's sentences. You can answer this for your spouse if you want to. You don't have to answer it for yourself. When I am delayed and running late, I am irrationally upset. Number seven, I have difficulty finding time for a doctor's appointment. Yeah. And number eight, I feel compelled to leave the church early to beat the parking lot rush. Anybody? 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 You don't have to raise your hand on this and we'll just wave at you when you leave this morning. Hey, I get it. I'm the same way. We're in a hurry, always trying to eliminate as much time as we can from that space between. We don't like the journey. We want the destination. I'm always, whenever we get something, start on something, I want to get there and I want to finish it to the point. Haley and I, I've made everybody tense. We're in a hurry. I'm trying to get there even when we're on vacation. And Haley said, you got an appointment? We're going on vacation. Why are you in such a hurry? I just want to get there. What are you going to do when you get there? Nothing. So you're in a hurry to do nothing? (laughs) Yeah, I'm in a hurry to do nothing. Here's the inescapable conclusion as you read the story and experience your own story. You listening? God is not in a hurry. We have seen this consistently as we have studied the scripture. Abraham was told he would be the father of great nation, but it was decades before he ever had his first child. Joseph, God gave him a dream, but first he was a slave and then he was a prisoner. And it was some 13 years later before he ever saw any inkling of the fulfillment of that dream. Moses, 40 years on the backside of the desert before he ever runs into this burning bush. David, who was anointed king, but it wasn't until 20 years later that he actually got the crown. God is not in a hurry. What was supposed to take 11 days winds up taking 39 years. And here's the primary reason. God is more concerned about who you are becoming than where you are going. God is more concerned about who you are becoming than where you are going. 
And that's hard for us because we're all about the going. We're all about the destination. But God is more concerned about what is developing on the inside of you. So God, with the nation of Israel, is going to do something in His people while they are on this journey until they get this thing figured out. They are not going to go into the promised land. He's going to use the wilderness. He's going to use the wandering to work on His people's hearts. That's true in our own life. We want to get the waiting over with, but what God does for us in the waiting is often more important than whatever it is we're waiting for. What God does for us in the waiting is often more important than whatever it is that we are waiting for. He does some of His best work in the wilderness, and wondering is a part of becoming. I want us to look at how the Israelites deal with their time of the wilderness, the space in between. If you read through Exodus and Numbers, you will find the primary theme of the Israelites in that period of wondering is whining and complaining. Over and over, they whine and complain about everything. And you can make a case that their whining and complaining is a, is a symptom of a greater problem, the greater problem being the root of unbelief and the lack of faith. Because unbelief and lack of faith often reveal themselves as whining and complaining. That's why we whine and that's why we complain. We don't have confidence in the driver with a capital D who is driving us along this journey to enjoy the journey from the back seat. So we complain. Are we there yet? Why is this taking so long? Why is this happening to me? And lack of faith or unbelief in the driver is often revealed in our whining and our complaining. With the nation of Israel, they seem to whine about food more than anything else. Numbers 11, 4, and I've chosen the message Bible, the paraphrase to read from because I like the way they say it. 11.4 of Numbers, the riffraff among the people had a craving as soon as they had the people of Israel, as, uh, a craving, and they soon had the people of Israel whining. Now, riffraff in the NIV is translated rubble, and it basically means the people on the outskirts of the camp began to complain about their, 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 the buffet options, and that began to ripple into among the whole congregation of the people of Israel, and before long, all the people were whining. Why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt. And got it free. I'm going to try to use my best whiny voice. To say nothing of the cucumbers and melons, the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but nothing tastes good out here. All we get is manna, manna, manna. They're whining and complaining about food that God has miraculously provided for them. They really started off complaining as soon as they left the driveway. Exodus 16 verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into, out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Really? You were slaves in Egypt. You make it sitting around those pots of free meat like it was one big fondue party. Like it was some Texas barbecue and it was all on Egypt's dime. You were slaves. But that's what we do when we get into this 
realm of complaining. That's what is characteristic of complainers. They see every situation as better than the one they're currently in. Whether they're comparing their current situation with a time in their past, or they're comparing their situation with somebody else in life that has it better than them right now, anything is better than what they currently have. And if whining and complaining is a theme of the journey of the Israelites, the grace of God is as much a theme as well, because time and again they complain, and time and again God meets their whining and complaining with acts of His grace. But eventually, the patience of God wears thin. Numbers eleven eighteen, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will eat it for not just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and you have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? You want meat, God said? I'll give you meat. What's he doing? He's giving them a shift in their perspective. And that's what our whining and complaining needs. We need a perspective shift. We need new perspective We lose sight of how blessed we really are. We lose sight of how much He has provided. And we need some perspective. John Ortberg says that there are four little words that would change our life when we come into those unfair places in our life, those wandering moments of our life, the space between moments of our life. Four little words would change our life. It could be worse. It could be worse. But this is not what we do. We tend to say, I deserve better. This isn't fair. But what if we could look at those unfair moments of life and say to those moments, those seasons, it could be worse. It gives complaining some perspective and it makes us a little more grateful. I want us to embody those words. I want, them to carry, I want us to carry them with us into those space between moments that we're living in right now. So say that with me. It could be worse. Say that. It could be worse. So that means when you go home today and you walk into your apartment or your house that you've been complaining about and wishing you lived somewhere else or you had a house like they had, whoever they may be, instead of going through all of the normal cycle today of complaining and whining about the roof that is over your head, you're going to walk in the door of your house today when you go home from church and with a little more appreciation and a little more passion, you're going to say, it could be worse. Or the next time you step on the scale... Or wake up in the morning and walk by the mirror and get a glimpse of yourself that you didn't really want to see. And that bad look gets on your face. You're going to, instead of saying, I wish I had his metabolism or I wish I had her hair. You're going to look in the mirror tomorrow and you're going to smile when you see yourself. And you're going to say, it could be worse. (laughs) And when you wake up in the morning and you roll over and see your spouse, you're going to, I'm just kidding. No, I'm really not. It could be worse. Sometimes we just need a little perspective. We get lost in the way we think about things and the way we think things should be. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't compare to what everybody else has. We just need perspective. 
A pastor friend of mine was recently on a flight to Orlando for a ministry conference and uh, he happened to see this whole event unfold. There was a mom that he presumed to be a single mom sitting on the aisle, her small son sitting in the center seat and a businessman not connected to them at all, poor fellow, trapped by the window seat. I've been that guy. And I've also been the parent with the kid too. So I'm understanding of both. But he said he watched this unfold and As they got up in the air, the little kid began to uh, complain loudly that he didn't want to sit in the middle seat. He wanted the window seat. And the businessman had his noise-canceling headphones on and his paperwork, and he was turned sideways, kind of looking out the window. Everybody knows he heard that little boy ask for that seat because everybody heard this boy crying and wanting that seat, but that man refused to listen. He refused to even look that way. He was not giving up his seat. I don't know the man, but I like him. The mom kept telling the little boy, baby, we're on our way to Orlando. We're going to Disney World. In just a few hours, you're going to see Mickey. And she starts naming the characters and all the rides. We're going to the Magic Kingdom. But none of those promises and none of that expectation deterred the little boy because he wasn't going to be happy until he got the window seat. And he wanted it now. You're on your way to the magic kingdom, but life's not fair because you don't have a window seat. You're on your way to the magic kingdom, but life's not fair because you don't have a window seat. Sound familiar? You're on your way to heaven, but God, I would really like a different seat. I want want to sit by the window. We complain and we whine because we lose perspective about baseball season and it reminded me I've seen it happen so many times a father's at his junior high son's baseball game and his son strikes out and the father loses it it's this overzealous father trying to live what he never accomplished through his son and he starts yelling at his son what's wrong with you keep your eye on the blankety blank ball and then he turns his attention to the umpire and wears him out and gives him a tongue lashing. And I want to say, buddy, come on. It's a beautiful day. Your son is strong and healthy. Thank God he has the health and mental capacity to even play the game. You're one of 8% of the people on planet earth who have the privilege of driving a car and actually attending a game like this. Quit whining like a spoiled brat. Take a deep breath and say, thank you. We've all been there. We've all found ourselves caught up in the moment. And we look at the Israelite story and we say, yeah, but I would never have complained like that. Yes, we would have. You complain when you have to eat leftover food two days in a row. You complain when the turkey from, from, uh, from Thanksgiving didn't get eat up and it winds up in your lunch for four days after Thanksgiving. What we need is a little perspective shift to see how blessed we really are. 
I recently read a story about the impact short-term missions trips have on churchgoers who leave their comfort and, and go to another part of the world where poverty is real and sickness is real and they serve them in the love of Christ. And in this particular article, a woman was giving her testimony. She had gone to uh, one of the islands that are a part of the West Indies called Tobago and there's a leper colony there. And, and the last day, she had been there for a number of days and she was getting ready to come back to the States and um, she was singing with them in worship, leading the worship time. And she asked them, after the worship time was almost over, she said, do any of you have a song you would like to sing as the last song? And a lady in the back raised her hand. It was a fingerless hand. And she made the request from a face that had no nose, no ears, and no lips. And this was her request. Can we sing the old hymn, Count Your Blessings? You know the hymn? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your many blessings. We just sometimes need a a little perspective. We get focused on the negative and we lose sight of what we have to be thankful for. And in the case of Israel, God eventually has enough and He says, You want meat? You'll get it. And eventually you're going to see that because of all their whining and complaining, a whole generation of the Israelites were lost in the wilderness because they never became, they never grew, they never understood this, and they never did anything but whine and complain, and they never saw the promised land. It's a big deal to God. This is why. Whining is the opposite of worship. Whining is the opposite of worship. Worship is giving God glory for who He is and what He has done. Whining is ignoring God, who God is, and overlooking what He has done. Whining is the opposite of worship. And our story as the people of God is to be a story of worship. It's all about our lives, our stories are all about giving glory to God. Numbers 14 and 11 says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I performed among them? God says, how long are they going to keep complaining? What do I have to do? How much is enough? Here's the thing you see with people who struggle with whining and complaining. And just in case you're here and you're the one thinking that this sermon is for everybody else but you. This has been all of us at one time or another. And here's what complainers do. This is the perspective they have. Everything God asks of me is too much. All that God has done for me isn't enough. And no matter what He's done, we feel entitled for more. With Israel, God is asking, how much more do I have to do before you become content? I've demonstrated my power being in the ten plagues. I brought you out of Egypt. I split the Red Sea. I sent manna. I brought water from a rock, and yet you keep complaining. It's too hot. It's too long. The food is too bland. You don't like Moses and Aaron's leadership. I'm afraid that we, too, find ourselves in this mentality when we get in the space between we lose sight of what God has done God sent his son God sent his son God sent his son to die for us because he wanted to be in relation with ship with us so bad yeah but God 
market's down and I was going to retire and my stock portfolio is off 30%. Jesus became one of us to suffer with us, to be a kindred in our affliction, to give us hope in our agony. He's, and he's gone to prepare a place for us to build in our heart expectation. Yeah, but God, I've got these wrinkles and Botox isn't doing the deal anymore and my hairline isn't what it was. And Jesus died on a cross and took our sin and with it, he took our punishment upon himself and he took death so that we could know life. But God, if I just lived where they lived or I had his job or I could wear her clothes or, and we whine instead of worshiping, our response should be to acknowledge who God is and what he has done. That's what our response should be when we find ourselves in the space between. I want the, the team to come to the platform if they will and help me with worship. And as they prepare to come, I want to make this very key statement for you tonight, this morning. I don't want you to forget it, okay? I don't want you to forget this. When we complain to God in the space between, it's kind of like God is holding up the, the walls of the Red Sea for us. And we don't even see it. We don't even notice that the walls of the Red Sea are being held up for us because we keep looking down and we don't like the fact there's mud between our toes. I mean... Whatever the situation is, in light of all that God has done, in light of all that God has provided, He's holding up the Red Sea and we don't even notice it because we're preoccupied by the fact there's mud in between our toes. As irrational as that sounds, in light of His mercy and His grace, that's kind of what it sounds like. I'm going to ignore the fact you parted the water, Lord, because I'm going to focus right now on the fact I don't like this mud in between my toes. So today, I want us to be intentional. I want us to make a decision in this moment. It's a decision. It's not something you feel. It's something you decide. I'm going to be a worshiper, not a whiner. I'm going to bless his name regardless of the circumstances. I'm not going to complain. I'm going to trust the driver. I'm going to enjoy the journey. I want to worship. This week, that's what I want us to do is Right before we walk out of the door, I want us to worship. I want us to make a choice. I want us to act on it right now, regardless of how we feel, regardless of the circumstance. And I want us to say, I don't want to be like that, Lord. I know that's my nature. I know that's my tendency. Some of us are more bent that way than others. But I make a choice today. I'm going to worship you. This week, this was on my heart. I was thinking about the message for today. I was driving down the road. A song came on the radio that I, I thought was brand new. I thought I'd never heard it before and I went and researched it. Found out it's, it was written in 2009. So I probably have heard it at some time but maybe it just wasn't the moment and that day was the moment. I just sat in the presence of God and personalized this word in my own life and left this song help me move from whining to worshiping and I made a commitment. I want you to worship with me this morning. Would you join me today? Stand to your feet and let's make a commitment. Listen to the words of this song and then join us in singing.
available this morning thank you thank you for committing to worship instead of wine that little perspective shift makes the journey so much more enjoyable some of us find ourselves waiting and really haven't appreciated what God is doing in us while we wait today we're going to ask him I don't want to wander for years and never get it Lord help me get it there are people that make themselves available every Sunday to pray with you that God could finish what he started and give you whatever it is you've been waiting for healing restoration provision there's nothing wrong with asking while you wait but while I wait Lord I'm going to worship success or failure the service of these people is not based on who does or doesn't come their commitment is to be available for you if and when you need prayer and they're here today. We're going to keep our environment worshipful this morning. Haley and I are going to step into the guest reception area. I want to pray a blessing over you before we leave. And if you want prayer today about whatever it is you're waiting for, I challenge you to come now before the aisles get busy with people heading home. Step out from where you are and let's agree together with you in prayer that God will build a character and you will become. But when it's time for that journey to end, give you grace to endure it while you worship but sooner or later he's going to step in and produce whatever it is you've longed for father will you bless them and keep them will you make your face shine down upon them will you be gracious to them and turn your countenance their direction and give them peace god teach us how to trust you as the driver while we ride in the back seat teach us how to wait well and God 
produce in us the character and the man or woman you're trying to produce while we are on this journey together. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. These altars are open.